continue our study of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the evil of personal favoritism. The story told of a soldier who was brought before Alexander the Great for, for showing extreme cowardice in the field of duty. And when he was brought before Alexander, Alexander the Great asked him, he said, what's your name? And the coward answered, my name's Alexander. When Alexander the Great heard that, he just hopped up and he just lit onto the guy. He says, listen, you got to do this. You either got to change your name or got to start acting in accordance with your name, which was his name, right? I think that's a little bit about what James is doing to us here in the book of James. It's a little book that basically says, act in accordance with the name that you're associated with. We're Christians, right? Our name is associated with Jesus Christ. So in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, we find James saying, hey, act like a Christian in your trials. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, act like a Christian when you're being tempted. In James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, act like a Christian in regards to his word. In other words, uh, do it. Don't just put in your Bible, highlight it, all that kind of stuff. James says your time should reflect your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your compassion for others should reflect your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your convictions, your lack of compromise on certain issues should reflect your relationship with Jesus Christ. Act in accordance with the name. Now, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he says, hey, if you're a believer, act like it with regard to the sin of personal favoritism, of partiality. Now, we began to look at this last week, and we defined, if you'll recall, favoritism as judging another's spiritual inward condition or worth based upon uh, external conditions. Judging a person's interior condition based on externals. That, James says, is a sin. And we talked about that last time. He says there's no place in God's church for this. Today we want to return back to the scene of the crime and look at this evil of personal favoritism. And today we're going to look at really just the stupidity of favoritism. Then we're going to talk about the sentence that favoritism carries with it. And then we're going to talk about the uh, substitution for favoritism. What really should we be doing instead of uh, living in in a way that shows personal favoritism? We're doing this with a purpose, right? We're doing this with a purpose, and that's so that we can put the sin out of our midst and honor the name by which we've been called, okay? Just like anything, I know you guys have been doing some biblical counseling stuff. Uh, It's not enough when you come to the Word of God and you find the prohibitions there to just put off, right? The, the calling in Scripture is to put off by the power of God, by the grace of God, uh, through his Holy Spirit, as the word directs, to put off certain attributes that are in, in, in accordance with who the world is and to replace those or to put on other attributes that are more in accordance with who God is. Again, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, and in complete accordance with the word of God. And see our mind renewed so that becomes more and more a part of who we are and how we live on a day-to-day basis. The sin of favoritism can cause extreme dangers to churches. Clicks, gossip, legalism, slander, they destroy the effectiveness of the church. And most of those come from some form, or a lot of times they come out of this issue of favoritism with their exclusiveness, their elitism, and their man-made standards of acceptance. So, you know, a lot of places become these places where we accept you if 
you meet certain criteria as you come to us. Now, I'm not talking about biblical criteria, but I'm talking about external criteria. Some churches, you're not comfortable if your skin's a different color and you went in it for some reason. Should that ever be in the church of God? Absolutely not, right? Some churches, you feel uncomfortable because everybody there's driving really nice cars and you're pulling up in your Yugo or whatever, right? Should we be happy with that? Should somebody feel uncomfortable in our midst because of what they drive or don't drive? Certainly not. If your gene pool sits our, fits our circle, right? I mean, I've been to churches where everybody's kind of like has a German background or something like that, and they're not, you're outside that, it's like, hmm, you know? If your music tastes are the same as mine. Well, I like certain, I like the oldies. Well, I like the new ones. Hey, listen, it's not about that. What are the words? What is God teaching? Are we edifying one another? So we want to look at this again, and we want to finish this up today, and just really see what God has to say about this in James 2, 1 through 13. Let's read our passage again, shall we? My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a golden ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has been guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, we looked at verses 1 through 4 last week, and I encourage you, if you missed that, you can go online, right? And these things are all, it's amazing. As I was thinking, okay, what am I going to preach on when I'm here for a couple weeks? I went back. Do you know you have this on your website, all the old sermons and stuff? I mean, there's stuff from when I preached two years ago still on there. I'm like, what? What are those? Get those up. No. Uh, (laughs) And it goes back. I mean, you can go back, what, 10, 12 years or so on there, sermons. So I'm looking to see, okay, what's, what's been preached on what at? And so I don't, like, preach the same sermon again or something. I mean, you go back, I think you can probably go back to the 20s, man. People are, well, 23 skidoo, you know. Let's, it's ridiculous how, how far back that all goes in there. But go back and catch up with that if you weren't here last time. Today we're going to pick up in verse 5, point number 3 on your outline, where James shows us the stupidity of favoritism in verses 5 through 7. James says that favoritism is ignorant because it ignores what God is doing as well as what men are doing, Okay. And the first thing he tells you on your outline, you'll see it there, favoritism is spiritually irrational in verse 5. It ignores what God is doing. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? 
James, with the passion of a pastor, addresses them with love as he makes his case. He says, listen, my, my beloved brethren, I'm, I'm talking to you from a pastor's heart. Hear this. He says, guys, favoritism is spiritually irrational because it ignores what God is up to and what he's doing in the world. And, and he, he makes the argument there. Uh, and now, as you're, as you're hearing this, you might be going, well, is this favoritism the opposite way? Hold on to that thought. We'll address that later. But he makes the argument by pushing it the other direction because what we do in our natural state is we're like, hey, the rich people are coming in. They're, what we're really up to is they can do me some good, so I'm going to treat them good, right? And the poor, they can't do me any good, so I'm not going to treat them good. And he says, look at what God's been doing. God's greatest work has often been among the poor, the outcast, those who've been discriminated against, and the despised people of the world. Are you excited about that? I'm excited about that. Consider Israel, right? I mean, Israel was this puny nation started by a wandering old man. I mean, this is not, you know, let's go find the greatest nation on earth and let's make that my nation. That's not what he did at all. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, 7, God says to Israel, he says, hey, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest and the best. In fact, you were the fewest. You were the cast-offs. You were the thrift shop nation. God loves to choose a lowly, Right? And I think part of that is the fact that the lowly actually are listening for him, right? I mean, think about the times in your prosperity. It's often hard to hear uh, above the cacophony of all the things we have going on in our lives and all the, the, everything that's blaring our XMs over here, where direct TVs over there. You know, everything's just going on in life, and we're not even listening. We've got a poor person's going, hey, I'm at the bottom of things here. I'm hurting. I don't know where to turn next. My life is not turning out like I expected. What is there for me to do? What, what is the meaning of things? And their attention is more soft to hear God's design and what God's up to. God loves to cho choose the lowly. I mean, we talked about last time, right? David was chosen, right? He was this insignificant little shepherd boy, and he chose him. I mean, his father didn't even think about him. He chose him to be the king of Israel. He, he chose a, a lowly Jewish teenager to be the mother of Jesus, God made flesh. He chose to bring Christ into a, a simple uh, manger surrounding with this, by the stench of cattle rather than into a palace surrounded by the attention of many servants. He brought Christ into a carpenter's home, not a statesman, in a despised town, Nazareth, on the wrong side of the tracks. See, God has always had this place where he, he realizes that there's a receptivity issue and the poor and the downcast and the downtrodden are more receptible to hear the truth as he prepares their heart. Remember when Jesus started his ministry in Luke chapter 4? Remember that? He goes into the synagogue, right? The synagogue, the way it worked is, you know, there's scripture reading, right? And they're just reading through stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a liturgy of what they're going through. It's not like, hey, would somebody like to stand up and, and read a scripture? Pick something out. You'd like, whatever you want to read, read it to us today. It's not what it was. It was coming along. Jesus goes into the synagogue. The scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, right? And it, by the providential and sovereign hand of God, it's this particular messianic passage, right? 
and, and he gets up in front of him and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Which is all a mess. And people there, they're going, oh, this is, they know this is a messianic psalm. So they're like all freaking out, right? They're just going, oh. He, he says, today this is fulfilled in your midst. And they're just like, whoa, what? Did he just say what I thought he said? Get, excuse me, I need a stone. Because he just, he just said he was, he was the Messiah. Because they knew the Messiah, they knew the Messiah was coming with a purpose. And it was Teresos who were poor. Not, this is not speaking financially poor, okay, only, or something like that. So don't read into it what we think of only as poor. Uh, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to, to take the blind and give them sight. He's come to make change. He's come to take that which is hopeless and turn it into hopeful. You remember, I mean, we, we love change, right? Nobody likes change. Oh, we'll put it on a poster and vote for it, but when it starts happening, we don't want anything, right? No, no, we want, we, we want hope. But we won't hope according to our terms. This is the real situation. We are deep in the mire of the slow despair. And, and we are caught and we really have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. And so when the Messiah comes, he's not coming around sending out MasterCard. You know, here, here's your MasterCard. Here's your, you know, better money and stuff like that. He's going, hey, I got something that really will help you out here. I have change. I have life-saving, life-changing change that's awesome right that's amazing so much better so blessed are the poor in spirit right for theirs is the kingdom of god god's track record has a special place for those who have reached rock bottom this is not favoritism it's really an issue i think of receptivity because if it was favoritism, he would just only do that, right? And it would be based upon merely externals. And we know that, well, as we talked about last week, God knows the heart too. And so God, in his sovereign will, with his election, all that is doing his plan according to his purposes. But by and large, people who are self-sufficient are unresponsive when given the opportunity. So God, in his economy, doesn't give that opportunity always. If that makes sense to you. Were there rich people in the kingdom? Will there be rich people in the kingdom of God? You bet. Job was like, he was Donald Trump without the attitude, right? Job was, he was rich, man. He went poor and he went rich. I mean, Abraham. Abraham had a lot of stuff. He had so much stuff at one point, he and Lot had to go, let's go separate directions. The, the fields here can't even handle it. Joseph of Arimathea. There are these examples, right? By God's grace. So what James says, contrary to, to some liberal theologians, he doesn't say that only the poor are going to be saved or even that by being poor, you're going to be automatically a saint. Sadly, there are many poor who are still spiritually poor and happily, there are some rich people who are spiritual rich. What James is noting here is that the person that doesn't have much understands much better than others often the spiritual poverty and dependency that God demands if we're going to follow him. We've all known some people in our life, I'm sure, that had nothing, man. No money, no prospects. Maybe it was you, right? 
God worked on them. Their life was attuned to him. At church, every time the doors were open, man, just excited. But then all of a sudden, a little comfort, a little prosperity hit. They moved to the burbs, so to speak. And they started counting on themselves instead of God. And the next thing you know, tea time on Sunday at 10 a.m. is more important than the time, right? Materialism took control. The view of God got blurred because the distractions came about. What James is saying is, is in general, the poor are spiritually advantaged. The materially poor are so much more likely to realize their, their spiritual need and to entrust themselves to the grace of God. That's a staggering thing. Because none of us want to be poor, right? And I'm not saying go out and be poor so you can understand this, right? Where, where God has saved you, continue from there, the Bible says. James agreed with Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, he said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish thing of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he may nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before the Lord. But by his doing, and this is the beautiful part, right? You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption just as is written, let him who boasts, boast where? In the Lord, right? It's beautiful. I remember reading about a famous wealthy English noble woman who was talking about this verse and she said one letter made it possible for her to follow the Lord because she wasn't poor, (laughs) She says, not many, that letter M. Not any, it doesn't say not any, it says not many. Incidentally, God did not call the poor for the purpose of making them materially rich, as some would teach you today. Come to Christ, get your bills paid, get your cars upgraded, get your house nicer. That's so wrong. So opposite of what the Bible teaches. I mean, look at the, just go home and read Hebrews chapter 11 and check out those people who were the faith hall of fame people and see you know, if they got a lot of, like, a new car, you know, come on down. You know, was it that kind of life for them? No, they were beaten like drums, some of them, sawn in half, going around living in caves rather than to compromise. So they went around sheepskins, Armani sheepskins, I'm assuming, right? No. Goatskins, what, mink goatskins? No destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, and goes on. When God saves a poor man, listen to me on this. When God saves a poor man, he makes him infinitely rich. Right? But not necessarily according to the world's definition. The dollars that are in his pocket still do value. The stocks can still drop. The cars they have still rust. And any clothes they got still get eaten by moths. But God does something that's much better than that that fades away. He makes them spiritually rich every time. Every time when they're saved. Think about this for a second. When he saved you and pulled you out of that mire and gave you new life, he gave you the best real estate possible, right? Heaven. I mean, I go to Malibu and look at your best scenery. It's nothing. He, ta- he takes a broken heart and he replaces it with a brand new top-of-the-line heart. With a, with a lifetime warranty, right? 
He he undoes the chains of sin and he puts on you instead the white robes of righteousness and frees you to live in a newness of life. And he makes us heirs to the kingdom, adopted sons of the King of kings and Lord of lords. How awesome is that? So favoritism, if you just look at it merely on a financial standpoint, as these guys were doing, it ignores the spiritual reality of how God is working among the poor. And it's, and it's ignorant because of that. And favoritism is also ignorant because it's socially irrational. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? He says, your current condition is, is these people who are oppressing you, yet you in hypocrisy come and you bow down to them when they come into your midst. Many of the rich that Jesus or James was talking about here were most likely Sadducees, right? Rich and influential Jews who were among the first persecutors of the church. Go back to Acts 4, Acts 5, and you'll see this. They were very, very wealthy people. And they came after the church with every bit of energy they could have to try to stop this Jesus movement, right? And they said they were doing it in the name of God. That's blaspheming the fair name. That's what he's talking about. Jesus calls it blasphemy. James calls it blasphemy. He says, you treat the blasphemer better than these other guys who are coming into your midst. Instead of living by my golden rule, you're living by the rule of the gold, right? He who has the gold rules, right? Don't do it. James says, they blaspheme the fair name, literally the beautiful name there, by which you have been called, which is an interesting Greek word. It's used uh, in the Septuagint back in uh, Isaiah 4 uh, of the wife taking on the name of the husband. It's used in uh, Genesis 48 when a child takes on his father's name. It's just this intimate, beautiful name, this name by which you've been called, you've been brought into this relationship. James argues, look, at you're in this relationship. Now, act like who you are. Quit being doers of this folly of favoritism. It's spiritually irrational. It's socially irrational. And if you insist on going down this path of favoritism, regardless of its stupidity, James says there's a price to pay. And in verses 8 through 11, he discusses that, point number four in your outline, the sentence of favoritism. He he deals with this issue, issue positively first, and then he turns and deals with it negatively to teach from both directions. First, positively, positively he gives a command. He says, verse 8, If, however, you are fulfilling the loyal, royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. The royal law here, the ruling law, the kingdom law, the law of the king, the, the lex regia, the king of laws, is this, is this uh, thing that summed up all the law and the prophets, right? You remember Jesus saying that, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here he mentions the second part of that that is the, the horizontal portion of that. But the whole thing taken together was really a fulfillment of everything. And if you think back to, even back into Exodus 20, where you have the Ten Commandments, remember the Ten Commandments, you could break those up under the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, top first four commandments, and love your neighbor as yourself was really the last six commandments there. So this sums really even that up literally. And then from there, those two tablets, those were really the foundation of which all the rest of the details of the law that Moses works out with Israel fell under. I'm talking food laws, like we talked about with Peter, everything. They all had a purpose. 
to fulfill basically one of these two food laws. How did that do it? Because he was keeping his people pure at a time, keeping a remnant. So they loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So no other gods. Don't make idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. These are all about loving God, right? And then don't, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. No false testimony. Don't covet. That's all about your relationship to your fellow man, the horizontal. And Jesus says, he says, you know, if you can just hold on to this and love God first and foremost with everything you have, and then play that out in a love towards your neighbor, guess what? You've fulfilled the whole thing. Wouldn't it be great if we could live in perfect accordance with those two, the, with the royal law of love? Wouldn't it be just awesome if that's the day? Every day you could do it, right? I mean, what would change in the way you lived your life this past week? I mean, how would you treat somebody who treated you wrong if this royal law of love ruled in your heart? Would you go to battle with them? Would you forgive? How, how would you serve in the local church if this royal law of love ruled in your heart? What would you hold back, right? Nothing. How much would you give to church or to missions or to help that, that poor soul who needs something? How, how often would you share your faith if you truly cared about the fact there are lost people all around us who are on a collision course with hell apart from the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ being appropriated in their life? How would that change things? Would you bicker? Would you argue? Would you hold grudges? Would you gossip? Would you play, play favorites? No. <laughs> See, that's James's point People say, well, pastor, you know, I understand this love your neighbor as yourself stuff theologically, but uh, I just feel like, and I've had people say this to me, and you may feel this way, and if you do, can I just tell you, with pastoral compassion that you're wrong? <laughs> pastor, I just need to learn to love myself before I can love somebody else. Do not buy in to that carload of baloney okay in the last day second timothy chapter three verse two one of the first things it mentions about how people are going to be so messed up is they will be lovers of self <laughs> what wait if that's the road to loving my neighbor how can that be such a bad that's a bad thing to be a lover of yourself why because lover of self says hey my my brother here is hungry I'm hungry. I have enough for one. Eh, sorry. Love you. Right? Right? Uh, it says, you know, to invest myself in discipling another person or sharing the gospel with another person means that I may have to pour hours and hours of my time and I may not be able to play golf or badminton, whatever your, you know, yodeling, you know, whatever your hobby is. And then instead, I was like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here to be used up by you, God, in your ministry, however you want to see it. That's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Love, I gotta love myself. Nobody ever hated his own flesh, the Bible says. So either the Bible's right or you're right. Hmm? 
my beloved brothers, let us love one another and quit making excuses for our selfish desires. The Bible tells us that this royal law fulfills it all, and the fulfillment of this law is love. Love. Now, I, I love my theology, I'll be honest with you. And I, and I realize that there are a lot of people who just preach the love thing all the time to the exclusion of theology. And so if we're not careful, we can knee-jerk reaction and our pendulum can move the other way. We're all about theology and we're not about love. Can I just say this is what the Bible says and how theology needs to fit with the Bible, right? Uh, there has to be this component of love behind all of our theology. But there cannot be a, a, a theology-less love in application. Romans chapter 13, verse 10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5, 14, The whole law is fulfilled and you shall love your neighbors yourself. I love what D.L. Moody said. He said, Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. And what he meant by that is it ought to have feet. It ought to be action-oriented, too. In other words, I'm not just going to sit here and study it and study it and study it and know it and know it and be the first guy in Bible trivia, whatever that is, to win the game, right? But that when I come to the Word of God, it's in, a, in a verse that is as strange as this set of verses is that talks about favoritism, that I, I have to come to the mirror of the Word, see the difference between what He wants me to be and what I am, and seek by His grace to have my life conformed more and more into the image of His Son, In other words, I can't just think it, and this is James's whole thesis really, right? I'm not just a hearer of the law, but I'm a doer who doesn't deceive myself. Seems like a long time ago, but when I first got out of college, the company I worked for, my job was, well, not my job personally, but I was over projects that uh, we built refineries and petrochemical plants, and there was a piece of equipment in all these plants called a boiler. And a boiler does just what you think it does. A boiler maker over here would know. The, uh, it, you heat up, there's water in it, it's all heated up, turns into steam, right? The problem with a boiler is it's really hard to ever check, see how much water you got left in a boiler. <laughs> you can't open a, you know, like a radiator, right? When it's hot, you can't open it up or it's superheated steam, right? What they had on each one of these boilers was a little, it was in, just a little piece of glass tube and it was a gauge. And water seeks its own level, so whatever, it was running right up beside the tank, and when the water level would go down here, the water level in that glass tube would lower with it, because water is always staying to the same level. When the boiler was half full, the tube was half full. When the boiler was half empty, the tube was half empty. And James here is a very practical man, and this is, he's not asking for a confession of faith from us. He's not evaluating our amens and when they're placed or our flowery prayers or anything like that. He looks at this as a gauge. He says, how are you treating others? That's a gauge of what's going on inside this boiler of your heart that is Christianity. How does it play out? He says there's a gauge just like on that boiler. That gauge is a demonstration of our love to those around us when we don't play favorites, when we are reaching out with the gospel, when we are making disciples, when we are giving and sharing and coming alongside in love and truth. You know, in grammar, you got three persons, right? The first person is what? Somebody tell me. Lost them. Grammar. Anybody? Anybody know grammar? Raise your hand if you know grammar. Just go ahead. Any teachers? Grammar. First person. I. Second person. You. Third person. Them. He. She. You're it, right? All right. 
First person, I. Second person, you. Third person, him, her, it. Singular, okay? And there's a spiritual Christian grammar that we need to learn that's different from that, okay? It starts with the first person is who? He, all right? Second person is then you. And the last person, third person is I, okay? And that's really what the, how the law of love is played out. The effect of us changing our priority scales, it were, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and then I'll fall in filling all that up, is a staggering thing that have an impact and has had an impact upon societies. <clears throat> Ernest Gordon, in his book, Through the Valley of the Kwai, tells the miraculous transformation that happened in a, in a Japanese concentration camp in 1943 among Allied prisoners. In, in 1942, this camp was a, was a cesspool, literally. I mean, it was mud and filth. Uh, it was a, a scene of grueling labor, brutal treatment by Japanese guards, uh, hardly any food. The law of the camp was the law of the jungle, every man for himself, everybody doing what was right in their own eyes, so to speak. But if you came 12 months later, you find that the ground of the camp was cleared and clean, the bamboo Bed slats had been debugged, the huts had been rebuilt and fixed, and on Christmas, 2,000 men gathered to worship Christ. And the question is, what happened, right? What happened in those 12 months? Well, early in that year, before that, a prisoner, there was a prisoner who was starving, right? And they, they, all of them were starving, really. And everybody was in need, and he was begging around and trying to find somebody who would help him, and nobody, of course, would. And finally, this one prisoner gives him his last bit of food that he has. He ate it and sustained him. But the other guy who gave away his food died soon thereafter. They went in to clear out what little possessions he had. And among them, they're thinking, I wonder what, what maybe we'll find a secret of what this guy, why would he do that? It killed him, you know? Among his possessions, they found a Bible. They looked at it and wondered if it might hold the key to his willingness to give sacrificially to others, and they began one by one to read the Word of God. And soon the Spirit of God began to grip their hearts and change lives, and in a period of less than 12 months, there was a spiritual and moral revolution within that camp. And you see, the royal law had done its work, right? Here was a guy who just put that into practice. I've got enough for one. I'm going to love my neighbor as I would love myself, and I'm going to give it to him. And from that, the whole camp was turned around. That's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? I wonder what effect we could have on our communities and beyond if we would begin to live out, by the grace of God, this royal love without compromise. Now, you're not going to do it perfect. I'm not going to do it perfect. That's not what we're called to. We're saved by grace. We're not getting saved by law, right? But it shows the heart of God. So that's the desire of how I want to live my life, right? In accordance with who he is. So I want to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to earn my salvation, but because I have been saved and, and I want to reflect him and honor him, glorify him. I don't want to love my neighbor as himself because that's the way he loved. It's such a sacrificial way that he came and gave his life so that they might live. I think we would see a dramatic change, wouldn't we, in lives around us when Christians started acting like Christians. The church, there would be a lot of people leaving the church because it's like, I, don't want, I, I probably don't want to be around that because I feel the pressure to be like that. I don't want to be like that. And there would be a lot of people come into the church probably too going, I've seen something that's real. I've seen Christianity in real life.
there certainly wouldn't be any favoritism or partiality, classism, racism, that kind of stuff. Now look at this. James now turns in verses 9 and 10. He states the evil of favoritism negatively. The positive is, hey, fulfill the law of love, right? Love your neighbors yourself. Here's the negative to it, the consequence of favoritism. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has been guilty of it all. And he said, do not commit adultery. He also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He mentions no words. He says, hey, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. Literally, he says there, you are working sin. He says, if you want to keep every bit of the law, you must work, and you miss the mark one time, then the penalty of the whole law comes down upon you. God has a standard, right? Matthew 5, 48. You are to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's, if you're going to get there on your own, that's the only way you're going to get there. And you're not, right? I'm not. The problem is it's all of us sin, right? Romans 23, 3.23, sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. It's not just physical death, but it's spiritual death as well. You might be tempted to say, hold on, preacher, if I sin just once, am I condemned? The Bible says yes. James says if you keep the whole thing and stumble once, you're guilty of it all. One of the most beautiful places on earth, I think, is Yosemite, right? I love Yosemite. It's just absolutely staggering the first time I went there. But you know El Capitan, that big monster piece of granite on the north side of the valley? thing stands 3,604 feet tall. Right, that's three, two-thirds of a mile. Picture yourself up there on the top of that thing looking down that valley. People scale down that thing, right? Like, you nuts. You could, I would go, if I was at the top of El Capitan, it's because a helicopter took me there, number one, okay? So we're up there. We've got there by a helicopter. And you say to me, you say, David, why don't I just hang you over there so you can get the sense of what these people go through when they're doing this? I'm like, no way. No, no, it's absolutely safe. Here, let me show you. I got these carabiners here. This one here can can hold 20 uh, kilonewtons. I mean, this thing can hold the weight of a small car. How small of a car would be my question because I really want to know this. He says, watch this. He links it on to me. Perfect. He just holds 4,500 pounds, man. Okay, that's good. And here's another one. He puts them together, two, three, four, all the way through to nine. And then the last one, he says, oh, I thought I had 10 of these things. I got a twisty tie from the bread. I'll put that on there and tie it to a tree. Now jump. What do you think? If all those other caravans are going to hold me just fine, but here's what's going to happen. That twisty tie from the bread is going to pop, and David's going to be screaming, Mommy, all the way down to the bottom and make a nice little splat saucer-shaped right at the bottom. That's not good, right? See, because one link failed, the whole thing failed. And that's the picture here of what James is saying. It doesn't matter a bit if nine of them hold. One of them is all that needs to to fail. Link six, murder holds, but you committed adultery, you're dead. Uh, Link eight holds, you steal, but you didn't honor your father and mother. Link five, boom, you're a crater two-thirds of a mile down. If I commit favoritism, the link breaks, and I'm screaming mommy till I die. That's the way the law works. That's the consequences of favoritism. One stumble and you're a transgressor, he says. And a transgressor, as you'll remember, biblically is one who has crossed the line. You've gone too far. Great old theologians like Hodges and Owen and Calvin, those kind of guys. One of the great ones was I Love Lucy. You remember I Love Lucy? Anybody remember this TV show? I remember one episode, I used to watch this after school when I was a kid. She goes into this freezer, right? And the door shuts behind her and she's stuck in there. 
and they show her looking through the little piece of glass and she's got icicles hanging off her nose and ears and all this kind of stuff and she's stuck and she realizes something very important there that she cannot get herself out of there that she is absolutely at the, the, the whim of whoever happens to walk by if you can get out. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, we have been put into this position where by our own sin, where the wages of sin is death, we have the penalty there, we are locked in. But the good news then comes and says, but the free gift of God is eternal life and he offers you a way to be saved and that's by Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ came and he lived the perfect life. He died on the cross and he paid the penalty for sin. He rose, he ascended, he intercedes for us now. The perfect work is complete and finished and all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, right? Now, understand faith to a Hebrew is a lot different than faith to a Greek, okay? It's a different kind of thing. You need to really get this because Hebrew thought, which is where this all coming from, there's no such thing as a belief without uh, it affecting your life. If I believe it, I do it. We can believe stuff. Hey, I saw the photos of Pluto, right? I believe Pluto's a planet. I see photos. Didn't change anything, right? Still believe it's out there. But it doesn't change the way I live my life. Now you believe, put your faith in Christ. It means you believe in him and you give your life to him to lead you, to guide you, to, to direct you. James says, if you, if you know him, you'll walk the walk and you'll practice what you preach. If not, the penalty is enormous. And even as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ were to live in accordance, right, with what that should have looked like. Because we are being conformed into the image of a son. So more and more, we're going to live that out in a way that glorifies God. Then point five, he gives you the substitute for favoritism, verses 12 and 13. And he sums it up here. He says, so speak and so act as those who are judged to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. James says, word and deed, he puts them together. They, They can't be separated. He's not saying by showing mercy here, by the way, that we're procuring mercy from God or earning mercy. He's saying that the transformed life will exhibit mercy because we have known mercy beyond all measure. Our mercy does not have purchase power, but it has evidential power in our changed life. Jesus illustrated that back in Matthew 18. You can look that up on your own time this afternoon. But you'll remember the story there about the man who owed a debt to the king. And the debt was this huge, enormous debt. It was like inconceivably large. And the king forgave him the debt. And then the guy goes out, probably walking, just skipping through. I mean, I've been forgiven this debt. And then he sees a guy, and, he, and that guy owes him a, a debt. It's a significant debt, but it's nothing like what he owed the king. Three months wages kind of stuff. And he sees that guy and his, his, his changes, man. He, on a dime, he's like, hey, you, come here. When are you going to pay me what you owe me? You need to give it to me now or I'm going to turn you in. You can, and he just goes off on him. And the king gets wind of that. And the king comes back and says, hey, put him in the prison until he learns mercy, basically. Put him in there until he learns, well, I forgave him so much. He needs to forgive that little. As James deals with this issue of favoritism here, his point is that our beliefs should control our behavior, our creed should control our conduct, our doctrine should control our deeds. We must let the scriptures, not our heritage of what people are our people, 
be the standard. Well, that's just the way I was brought up. No more. We need to let love be our law. How can I love this person? How can I build this person up? We need to be asking that. How through Christ, through prayer, through the Holy Spirit, and the Word, how can we be living this out? And let mercy be your message. As we see ourselves as recipients of much mercy, we can't come to others aloof or thinking we're better than them, but we should come to them with a humble heart, with much mercy. Do you see how favoritism has no place among us? No place. The Christian faith has no place for discrimination of race, place, or face. You remember the great Hindu leader, Mahatma Gandhi. You know, early in his life, I don't know if you know this, he was drawn to the teachings of Christianity. He always loved the Sermon on the Mount, even later. But at that early point in his life, he tried to attend a Christian church in India, and when he went, he was treated really poorly. Later, he wrote in his memoirs that if Christianity had a caste system also, then he might as well just remain a Hindu. Gandhi said he might have become a Christian, if it were not for Christians. Wow. Listen. The derisive derisive term, Christian, which is the way it was meant when it was first used in Acts, right? They're Christians. It's something that we glory in, that we have been called because it shows our identification with Christ, right? And having such a great Savior who showed such sacrifice on our behalf, who gave his life so that we might live, uh, who, who, who gave us his word so that we might have instructions and, and, and gave us that and, and preserved it through the blood of martyrs and his power. And he, he sent his spirit when he went back to indwell us so that we might be able to do what he calls us to do. This one who loves us so much and the father who sent him there's really only right, one right response, and that is, you know, I want to live in accordance with who he desires me to be. I want to give glory to his name. Not just sing about giving glory to his name. Not just preach about giving glory to his name. But to actually do it by letting others see the evidence of a powerful God's work in our lives in real-world situations. People say, well, people don't care about religion or spirituality or anything like that anymore. I, I, I submit to you that's not true. I think it's heightened right now, actually. But I'll tell you this much. What they're looking for, and the reason so many of the kids are leaving the church at 18 and things like that is because they don't see the real thing much, like Gandhi. And it's because we live our Christian life thinking, hey, it's awesome I've been saved, and I'll do this and that, but I don't have to give it all. If you put your hand to the plow, you're not fit if you, don't, if you look back. That's what God's word says. We don't do that by our own efforts. Although there is an aspect where we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're saved by his grace and we're changed by his grace. But we are to submit to his grace. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. Lord, each one of these issues that we come across, including favoritism, is something that we all war with at times in our own souls and we look at a guy who we meet in 
coming down the street and we think certain things about them before we've even had a chance to know them. Or may we not be guilty of that sin, seemingly little and acceptable in our world's eyes, but not acceptable in yours, Father. May we give glory to you with our lives, every bit of our lives, for your sake. In Christ's name, amen.